Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to an hour of science. In the studio with me is Dr. Jen. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. We were just commenting on how long it had been since just you and I were in a studio together. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's exciting. We love everyone else we get to broadcast with, but it's kind of nice just to hang out. Yeah, you know, the two old timers from that. Right. <laughs> Speak for yourself, mate. Well, you I'm know, not nearly I'm as get... old by a couple of years. Yeah, yeah I'm getting on, <laughs> getting on. But, uh, you know, still, still spry. <laughs> Absolutely. Say, you know, vocally spry, without the fry, Indeed. as I no, say. No, no fry. No, no, no fry. <laughs> no, none of that. Uh, folks, we've got a big show for you today. Jen and I are going to start off with some news, but then we have a range of guests. We're going to be talking with our first guest from the Baker Institute about microscopy, optical microscopy, my old, my old stomping ground. So that's going to be fun. Uh, and then we have a couple of guests coming in to talk about organ donations. And we have both one of the people who helps coordinate some of those programs, but also uh, someone who has been a recipient, which will be interesting to hear about that experience as well. Absolutely. Um, and I guess the, the lack thereof of available organs for many people, which is a, is a pretty big problem. But yeah. anyway, uh, I also wanted to mention a big thank you to everyone who subscribed to the show over the last couple of weeks. It was great. Getting all the people—I was going to say calls—all the people online. <laughs> I'm still. You got all the messages. Uh, how how it lovely, like, it lovely is it just to be able to read out messages from people? Because you know we sit in here and we have some sense that there are wonderful people out in the world listening to us, but you don't always kind of get to think of individuals and their names and what they're doing while they're listening and who their yeah. families are. And thanks for all the messages. Yeah, no, it's great. And the uh, the finances, of course, that you put into the station do help run Triple R because we don't uh, take the kind of money that other commercial stations take which is why we get to say whatever the hell we want, Jen. Which Absolutely. Is <laughs> That's why I'm here, right? <laughs> That's kind of good. But, folks, the, the Radiothon period still continues. So if anyone does want to get online and subscribe to Triple R, you can still do that via rrr.org.au. Um, I actually missed subscribing during our show last week. Did you forget? Yeah. Oh, shit. It was a busy Why? show. I did it during uh, Eat It. Oh, good. So uh, I, I raced home and thought, oh, I must do it during Eat It. I must do it during Eat It. So that was all good. Anyway, uh, if you if you want to do that, folks, um, we'd still very much appreciate that. So get online and subscribe and support Triple R. But let's go to some news. Jim, what do you got for us? Well, I want to talk a little bit about amputation, uh, which I know is a bit of a big topic for a Sunday morning. But I guess, you know, my take on on amputations is obviously it's it's major, major surgery. But in this day and age, it is also generally safe. You know, we have access to general anaesthetics. We have access to sterile conditions and we know how to control pain and bleeding. So, you know, it's maybe a little bit routine as much as I understand it's a, a major, major undertaking. But the earliest example we have of amputation um, until this week, obviously, which is where I'm getting to. But until very recently, we thought the earliest amputation or the evidence we had was from 7,000 years ago. Right. So quite a long time, okay. And this was a European farmer whose remains were found in France and his left forearm had been um, surgically removed. And then you could tell from the way the bones had healed that, you know, it had healed. 
And, you know, given that amputation relies on a really good understanding of anatomy and quite precise technical skills, you know, we thought that that was the earliest example that we would find or we had found of this pretty complex medical procedure. But that all got turned on its head this week with this paper that's just come out in Nature from authors in Australia and Indonesia. And in the paper, they share the discovery of this new, um, these skeletal remains from a limestone cave in Borneo um, in Indonesia. And this child, they can tell us that it was a child, had had the foot and the lower part of their left leg surgically amputated at least 31,000 years ago. So this is 24,000 years earlier than we previously had evidence. And, you know, they they were really confident looking at the bones and how they'd healed. There was no sign of infection, which might have happened if it had been an animal injury, no sign of a fracture or crushing. You know, they can be really certain looking at this bone that it had been surgically amputated and had then healed. And they can tell looking at the the remains of this child that the child had gone on to live for another somewhere around six to nine years. So the amputation happened when they were a child and Mm. then they died in their late teens or early 20s. and then their remains were, were intentionally buried in this limestone cave in an area that's got some of the world's earliest rock art. Wow. And they're confident yeah. because of the way the remains had been treated. This wasn't a punishment. This wasn't a ritual. This wasn't torture. They, they reckoned that this was, you know, trying to help this child who obviously had some problem yeah. um, with their leg, which, I don't know, I think it's just amazing because it shows the child had been cared for. This is a really mountainous area, so if you were missing a foot and part of your leg, you probably yep. only survived for that six to nine years by having your community really yep. feeding you and helping you and everything. So it just goes to show that, you know, making assumptions about what early human could and couldn't do medically, we should never be too quick to make assumptions. What kind of natural anaesthetics were floating around at the time? Well, that's what one of the researchers commented on in one yeah. of the interviews that I was um, reading, just that your heart goes out to this child, even yeah. though they lived 31,000 years ago. The level of pain must have been beyond what, you know, like you just feel terribly upset yeah. on that child's behalf because there wouldn't have been pain relief as far as I understand. Yeah, it, it, it's it's an interesting decision-making process there at that particular time as to yep. why you would go about that um, because generally speaking, you know, you lose a limb, you die, um, you know, due to animal attack or whatever else. So the idea of actually deliberately taking a limb off yep. um, is, a, is an interesting one that um, – yeah, it's interesting to see that, that that's that's been done. But, geez, it's a lot older. Yeah, so 24,000 years older than we previously yeah. had evidence for. That's a long time. Yeah. We were doing some cool <laughs> stuff back then. We, we I, the, the royal we, as the royal we take human, on board. That, yeah, that's right. We yeah. were smart enough to do that. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think it's, it's interesting just how often um, we forget just, you know, how much was was being done around the world in various parts, and you know, not not all good, but um, mm. you know, some some of it quite amazing. And I I, th- I think the idea that we were just you know lumbering around, you know, with no no clue as to the world we were living in is quite erroneous. Yep. So yeah, hundred percent. Interesting stuff. All right, uh, one quick thing to mention uh, that I saw um, a few weeks back, which I thought was fascinating, was. You know, we, we have a lot of um, asteroids and meteorites and stuff that are hitting the Earth. Not big asteroids, but, yeah. well, there was well, a couple. I was going to say, there's uh, been a couple there's of There's been, been a few ones. <laughs> and, you know, we, we get a few, but there's there's little bits of crap hitting the Earth all the time. And, you know, there are various um, organizations around the world that monitor some of this. And, you know, NASA obviously tracks a lot of objects. Um, in fact, there's the DART mission coming up where they're yeah, going to yeah. deliberately try and hit a, a small um, asteroid to see if they can change its trajectory, yeah, I saw that. Um, which will be, uh, you know, it's an interesting test of, you know, I mean, Bruce Willis is not involved. Um, <laughs> Are you sure 
or they're not going to get it to have a cameo. Come on. I don't know. Um, but they, they're going to try and, you know, divert the direction of that and see, you know, it's a sort of proof of principle really. As do you to, reckon it'll work? I have to ask, Shane. Do you think it'll work? Oh, look, to me, if you're in space and you whack one object against another object, odds are you are going to impose uh, some momentum from object A to object B. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like, does Newton work? Yes. Um, <laughs> will, will they will they sort of see as, as big a change as they're, they're hoping for? I think that depends a lot on how much we know about that particular object, which is, mm. you know, I mean, we haven't gone out there and, and determined its mass. So, you know, there's a lot of un- unknowns there. What if it flies off really fast and we have this, like, giant galactic billiard game going <laughs> on with things just shooting in there, different directions? There have been questions about that, but I think uh, I think NASA's been pretty careful as to which object they've chosen to make sure that that is, that is not going to be the case. Okay. And, you know, the sort of gravitational areas in which these things occur, it's not like um, – it's like playing billiards, but you're, you know, in a, in a space where there's a lot of – you know, on a golf course where there's a lot of sand dunes and once you're in one, you can't get out. So it's not yeah. like these things can suddenly okay. just fly around. But um, one of the things that does happen on occasion is we, we have these unknown objects that come past us. And there was an interesting one. Um, it was about a meter wide, which um, streaked through the sky um, back in, in January of 2014. So this is quite a while back um, over Papua New Guinea. And the interesting thing about this object was um, the speed with wind within which it came um, to Earth. So it was a lot faster than a lot of um, other meteorites that that hit us. And so what you've got to look at then is say, okay, well, how fast can you be traveling out in space and still be bound within our solar system? Mm -hmm. And there are limits to that. And this particular rock seems to be, have exceeded those limits. Now, when you hear that, you realize, well, hang on, what does that actually mean? Well, that means if um, if it didn't hit Earth, it would have been going too fast to being held within our solar system, mm-hmm. which also means it wasn't in our solar system when it started, so it came from outside. Mm-hmm. So this is a you know interstellar object that's yeah. come through. Um, the part that I thought was really fascinating though is how some of this detection was made. Um, so it wasn't made by the normal NASA you know satellites or, or deep space network or anything else. It was actually by several spy satellites that are run by the oh, US because really? <laughs> it was an unknown object traveling at high speed. Oh, and so, so were, that, that was yeah that was actually how the the details of this were um, were discovered and and they've been trying to plot the course and stuff ever since. And you know there's some work that's come out that's indicated that it was probably an interstellar object, which I, I think is really cool, um, reminding us that you know we do get objects from outside our solar system, even though there's a lot of junk in our solar system. There's a lot of stuff traveling around that's um, you know, out there as well, and, and it takes a long time. So mm-hmm. this could be a very, very ancient object, um, which would be pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, so Voyager, what, Voyager 1 and 2 are outside of our solar system now, and I think... I think Voyager 1 takes about 20, 20 21 hours for the, the signals the to message. get to us now. So that's that's 21 hours at the speed of light for the signals to get back to, to Earth. So, you know, and it's just outside our solar system. So if you think of this object as coming from another solar system, yeah, you know, wow. it's a long time in the making. So it's kind of... Kind of cool stuff. Well, it was a good proof of concept that the spy people, you know, picked it up. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's what they were looking for. <laughs> yeah, but they found it, so that's good, right? They're spying on um, extra extra solar objects, which is kind of cool. Yeah. So anyway, it's it's interesting proof of principle. But there's so much stuff up there, of course, to, to track. It is it is a difficult um, challenge, and especially when something comes in a lot faster yeah, from an sure. unknown location. It's not like something you were tracking last year. This thing is new, yep. and all of a sudden, bang, it's hitting yeah. the earth. So yeah, not that big, fortunately. Good. I'm glad. (laughs) What else we got? Well, if I tell you that I've got another piece of really exciting news, uh, science news for you, Shane, you Mm. might be surprised that I'm going to be talking about tweezers. 
Just, ah. you know, tweezers, exciting science news, don't necessarily go together. I'm a big fan of a good pair of tweezers. Well, tweezers have actually <laughs> been around for a long time. Can you guess for me? Because I had no idea until I looked it up yesterday. How long do you reckon tweezers have, you know, if you talk to an archaeologist and say, how long have you been finding tweezers for? What do look, you reckon they'd say? Look, I would have thought um, for as long as you need to look at small objects and things, so splinters and things in people's bodies. So yep. I would have thought eight, 900 years would have been a reason of some type. Yep. Yeah. Um, they reckon 4,000 Holy. Years. Yeah. It's, I, <laughs> wow. I had no idea. Yeah, right? that's, so, that's surprising. And, and, you know, they're still used every day, not just yep. for kind of beauty um, beauty <laughs> purposes, but also in, in operating theatres, you know. Tweezers yeah. can be really important. And essentially the, the design of tweezers hasn't changed in yep. 4,000 years. But some researchers in Japan decided to kind of say, well, could there be a better design? If it's been around for 4,000 years, maybe there's something better than what we use, that kind of basic, you know, hinge, yep. and I'm doing it with yep. my fingers, yep. which is really useful People for all our it. listeners. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, as is very sensible, these researchers decided to look to nature for inspiration, and we've had lots of great stories over the years where nature, you know, evolution, it's already solved all of these problems. All we have to do is look. I'm thinking earwigs. No, crows. Crabs? Oh, no, crows. Oh. oh, crows. So they decided to look, they decided to model their tweezers on a crow's beak, given oh, yeah. that crows are very dexterous when it comes to, you know, pulling yeah, yeah. things out. You know, they use tools. Yeah. Um, and yeah, crows are well known for how intelligently they use their beak. So they designed and 3D printed these tweezers with a flexible part that kind of connects the two halves. And then they did some experiments, as all good researchers do. So they got some people to use these. These new tweezers. So essentially they had glass beads of different diameters and asked people to transfer them from one dish to another, either just with their hands, with traditional tweezers or with these new tweezers. And then they just timed how long it took. So some really, really tiny beads, some bigger beads, and they asked them how easy it was. Hmm. And looking at the smallest beads, so beads of like three or four millimetres diameter, there was actually no difference in the time. But once you got to bigger glass beads, it was much faster to use this new design. Because if you can imagine the inside of a beak kind of has a little hollow bit to hold the things. So it doesn't fall out rather yeah. than the no normal lateral flat movement. surface. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and people all said that the bird-inspired tweezers were easier to use. And I don't know, I just love the fact, and if, if any listeners want to Google it, you can watch them in action as videos. You know, it's just this little 3D printed tweezer. But I just like that they said, hmm, it's been around for a long time. No one's ever tried something different. How could we make it different? Let's see if it works. Yeah. And, yeah, and what yeah. they've even, come up with is better. I think it's interesting because even the really expensive tweezers, scientific tweezers, like which I had in my lab, you know, in days gone by, you know, some of them like $110 a pair kind of yep. stuff, like really full on were no better really no. I mean they, they had a very small point you know like they came to a very you could stab yourself with them they were like mm. a needle but beyond that you know they weren't any more sophisticated than mm, what you exactly. would buy at you know your local chemist yep yeah. exactly yeah. so there you go crow's beak gives us better tweezers interesting stuff uh, thank you Dr Jen folks we're going to take a break for some important station announcements and when we come back we'll be speaking with our first guest today Dr Adam Parslow from the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute we're going to be talking about microscopy that's all things optical and imaging it's going to be fun triple R Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and GoGo. In the studio with us now is Dr. Adam Parslow from the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute. He's the microscopy manager there, and he also holds an adjunct senior lecturing position at La Trobe University and an honorary fellowship at University of Melbourne. Did I miss anything, Adam? No, you've got it all. <laughs> <laughs> I always, you know, whenever I, I read about honorary and adjunct ones, I think, don't they pay you? Should we mention them? But, uh, yeah, we, you know. 
It's Always should mention. Always good to keep them in the loop. <laughs> now, um, the Baker. I mean, this is a this is one of Victoria's most prestigious, you know, medical research institutes. Um, how long have you been there? I've been there since March 2020. Yep. And so the, the Baker itself has been uh, mm. in the Melbourne community for 96 years, going strong. Wow, 96 years. I so. had no idea. So there's going to be a big centennial celebration soon. Yeah, I think it's a. Yeah, so I think. They've they've had a couple of name changes over the years, um, I remember, but the Baker part has always been there. And they're close to the Alfred, yeah? Yeah, so we're based on the Alfred precinct, so we've yep. got this great connection between our uh, clinician colleagues and the researchers. So there's a great flow between what we do at the bench and what the patients and uh, clinicians do in the hospital. Yeah, I'm not sure if Jen remembers this. Years ago, one of our team members was actually a researcher from the, mm. from the Baker, and uh, she taught me about the idea of sedentary behaviour, and it made me want to stand up ever since. I remember we did a show where we all, <laughs> all stood, stood up because we, we got stressed about sitting We got stressed about sitting for too long. So <laughs> now you, you run the microscopy um, program down there. So tell us a bit about what forms of microscopy you have, like what imaging technologies you have at the Baker. Yeah, so I look after everything that's involved with optical microscopy. So everything from a small benchtop microscope that you yep. might look at histology slides from a pathology lab, all the way to sort of full room size instruments, which do sort of super resolution fluorescence microscopy. Right. And like, how many how many people do you have there running that? Are you the only person that sort of runs it all? Or like, yeah, I'm the, um, the the lead of the platform, yep. but I interact with about eighteen or nineteen of the the wet research labs at the Baker, okay. covering the full breadth of research that um, the Baker covers. Now, I I once ran a microscopy facility not that dissimilar to yours um, when I was uh, at the University of Melbourne. And I had people coming in from all sort of walks of life. And they, they used to come in and say, just give me all the answers to my problems. <laughs> is, this, is this what's happening for you down there oh, at the Baker? Absolutely. Everyone um, has got a question that they're very interested in and they want the answer as quickly as they can get it. And what a core facility does is tries to give them the access and the ability to get those answers as quickly and as accurately as possible. Yeah. And tell us a bit about some of the new forms of microscopy. So two photon imaging, for example, is one that a lot of people won't have heard of. What, what's going on in, in that sort of imaging mode? Yeah, so we're using um, infrared lasers to um, penetrate deep within samples. So in standard sort of laser microscopy, you might image material that's maybe 100, 200 microns deep. Mm -hmm. But we want to get sort of context of our biology, so in millimetre scale. So we right. want to image about five millimetres deep within tissues that we're interested in. Right, and you can see through those top surface layers to get in there, can you? Absolutely. So that's where sort of the, the power of these lasers really comes to the fore. And, and when you sort of have a look at some samples, you might have to optically clear them to remove any sort of pigmentation from them so you can sort of see the biology um, sort of deeper into the tissue. Right. And with these techniques, can you do it in live tissues now or is it still sort of all dead stuff that's sort of fixed no, and glued? The or? great thing about these new technologies is that we want to visualise our biology in context. Yep. And so having things in live model systems is, is the best way to do it. Right. And uh, so in, in that sense, what's the sort of temporal aspect of it? Because I know, you know, one of the things, if you look at, say, say MRIs and so forth, you know, they're fairly slow. I mean, we have functional MRIs, which are, are better, but these things are fairly slow to see biological processes. How does that track across into the optical regime? Is it is it slow also, or can you see things really rapidly? Well, we try and go as fast as the, the systems will allow us to do. So we're generating maybe 10, 20 frames a second of our 
our biological <laughs> interest at super resolution. So we're trying to resolve objects that are down to sort of 120, 140 nanometers in size. Yeah. So that's sort of you have a human head diameter, sort of cut it 600 times is roughly sort of the size of the objects that we're trying to distinguish. Yeah, and, and 120 nanometers is below. I mean, we're going to have to teach people something here, but <laughs> there's a thing called the diffraction limit, right? I mean, back in the day, you couldn't go below about half the wavelength of the light you were you were using. So 120 nanometers is that. You know that's below the diffraction limit. Yeah, in this so case. now we're, we're really looking at sort of super resolution microscopy, mm. and it uses sort of the, the new advances in sort of technology and, and sensors and sort of the computational analysis that we can perform to really sort of go below that diffraction limit. Yeah. Then one of the things I know you're also involved with Adam is this this international sort of work around how reporting and so forth and and um, I guess write ups of of microscopy data is done. Is is there a huge problem there around the world with regards to there being inconsistencies in the way this material is reported? Well, not really a problem, but more so there's much room for improvement in how we sort of report our um, experiments. And so, you know, if I'm on a microscope here in Melbourne mm-hmm. and I've got a colleague in Lisbon with a similar question, can they perform the experiments that I did? And so they need to know how I performed it, what mach- equipment did I use, what sample preparation did I do? And so a part of a, a working group which has sort of imaging leaders from across the globe covering sort of vendors who make the microscopes all the way to the publishers who publish our science, how can we standardise how we report uh, our data? Right. Is there progress happening on that? Because that seems like a, a can of worms. <laughs> like I can't imagine them all agreeing on that. Oh, it's a massive can of worms, but yeah. it's a really collegial effort. So um, this is through a group called the Quarry Blimi Group, and we've broken it down to sort of 13 global working groups which cover all areas of optics be that you know lasers cameras how you mm. report data how you present your data for in images or in publications and so we sort of focus on a small topic uh, discuss that topic generate sort of white papers and, and guidance mm. and then get buy-in from both the vendors to make it easy for scientists to do it on the in the field and also from when the publishers to make sure that to get science published you must comply with these standard guidelines yeah. So given what you've just said, Adam, I'm imagining that uh, you're, you know, an important part of your job must be mentoring students who are coming into this field and, and exposing them to all of the possibilities, but also best practice. Is that something that you enjoy doing in your job? Yeah, that's the best part of my role as a core facility manager is sort of the empowering the next generation of researchers through the best optical imaging experiments that they can. And there's nothing better than seeing a, a, you know, an honour student, a PhD student at the start of their research journey take to a duck to water in the microscope and then and that sort of leads these sort of scientific questions in a new and an exciting way yeah i think i think it's always it's interesting sometimes you come in do, do you see the other side of that too where they 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 think they've seen something in the imaging and you you have to sort of pour a bit of cold water on and go look uh, that's an image artifact from the machine well it's always great to have people who are excited by their imaging and so a huge part of what we do is you know educating of like or making sure that the proper controls have been done and they're interpreting the data correctly yeah i mean you don't underestimate the power of that i remember once when i was doing some imaging a, a student came to me that, to check you know someone else had done her imaging for her and i checked and said this is actually really bad we have to redo all this because that person had done a really shoddy job i ended up being a phd uh, supervisor after that for the next three years <laughs> um you know so you got to watch you know it can it can get out of control but uh it's good to get it all right um what's the most interesting thing you've looked at so we're trying to see how clots uh, form in vessels and, right. and how can we design new drugs to affect how those clots dissolve in patients so we can yep. improve clinical outcomes. And, and you've looked at the clots themselves? Yeah, so we can form the clots in real time under the microscope cool. and then we can treat 
these clots with all our various new novel drugs and see if we're getting a beneficial outcome. Right. Now, it's cool stuff. Adam, uh, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us today on Einstein and Gago. I know you're going to have a lot of... um a lot of people now who may not have known that these facilities were available at the bank are all banging down the door. I'm, I'm not sure how, what the capacity is like, but usually if, if it, it, anything like what I had, uh, usually there was not enough time. Is that... Oh, we can always make time for people who are interested. Fit a few more? Yeah. Who are interested in our research. Yeah, excellent stuff. Uh, Dr. Adam Passo, thanks so much for coming on Einstein and Gogo, and good luck with the ongoing work there at the Baker. I appreciate your time today. Folks, we're going to take a short break for some uh, music, and when we come back, we'll be speaking with our next two guests. Triple R. Uh, you're listening to Triple R. It's Einstein and Gogo time. We have our next two guests in the studio. Dr. Jen and I are pretty excited about this. We have Megan Bruns, who's the Donation Specialist Nurse Coordinator out at Western Health. Welcome, Megan. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great to have you in. And we also have Catherine Walsh, who is one of our organ donor recipients here in Victoria. Hi, Kat. How are you going? Hi, I'm well, thanks. You prefer Kat or Catherine? I prefer Kat. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> you know, whenever someone sends me this stuff, I'm like, really? You sure? Because I don't want to make any... Got to uh, check. Got to check. But that's, that's what we have the break for, so I can check during the break before we come back on air. Uh, now, look, I, I want to sort of talk through a lot of things here because this is a really interesting area. And for years, uh, many years ago, I did a lot of promotion of organ donors on the show. Um, and then, I don't know, that was 20 years ago, uh, we kind of got busy. I remember um, doing a high school yeah. assignment about organ donors and being sent, you know, the stickers that said, don't yeah. take your organs to heaven, heaven knows we need them here. And that was, yeah, that's 30 years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, long ago. No, geez. That's a while back. But this is something that I think we, we don't talk about a lot and we don't talk about enough, which is, you know, a bit of a problem. Now, um, Megan, you're out at Western Health. Yep. Um, they're building a nice new hospital out there for they you. Are. Have you seen it yet? Is it... Uh, it's taking off, yeah, the new taking off. Footscray Hospital. Yeah, yeah. I was born at the old Footscray Hospital. <laughs> as soon as they bulldozed that. Yep. <laughs> I think everyone thinks it's true. <laughs> Look, I'm sure it was good when I was there, um, but that was a long time ago. Um, now, tell us a bit about your, your work out there because you're, you're sort of one of the sort of nurse coordinators. What does that mean? Yeah, so I'm based at the Western Health, so I cover both Sunshine and Footscray Hospital sort of on my – sort of downtime, I guess, but mm-hmm. part of my role as a donation specialist nursing coordinator for Donate Life Victoria is we cover the whole state. So right. um, part of my on-call role is to take referrals from any ICU or ED around Victoria and we also cover Aubrey up in New South Wales as well. Right. Uh, and then if there's a potential organ donor, then we actually travel to, to, to get those, them, yeah. yeah. So, so you have to go and do that yourself. Yep. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and what does that look like? So if there's an organ donor, say in Shepparton, you know what what what's the process? Talk us through the how that process works. Yeah. So myself or one of my colleagues would make our way to Shepparton uh, and meet with the intensive care team up there. Uh, and if the pa- patient's potentially suitable to come a, become a donor, mm. we then meet with the donor family. Right. Um, raise donation as an opportunity at um, the patient's end of life. Yeah. Uh, and if they consent, there's quite a extensive consent process that we go through with them. Uh, and then there's a lot of work in the background that we do to make sure that the patient's a suitable to become an organ donor and that they are safe to become a donor as well. So right. blood tests, extra scans... Uh, and once we collate all that information, um, then we start making those calls to the transplant units, um, as Kat's had that call before. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and in terms of when, when you say suitable, uh, 
you know, I, I, I was always under the impression you had to, you know, it sounds harsh, but you have to die in a certain way. So there's there's that. So I, I suspect in a controlled way is, you know, more than, you know, I, I just fell off a building kind of thing. So controlled way that they can they can sort of maintain yep. um, the organs in the appropriate way. But what, what other parameters are involved in suitability? There's not much that would exclude someone to become an organ donor. Uh, you do have to die, like you mentioned, um, in an emergency department or an intensive care unit connected to a ventilator. Right. Um, so there's that controlled environment. And we do need time to assess um, suitability as well. So just, yeah, a lot of people in the community do think, you know, if you unfortunately die in a car accident, can yep. I still become an organ donor? But unfortunately not. You yet need to be in that controlled environment in a hospital, yeah. which makes it incredibly rare mm. for yeah. someone to become an organ donor. Absolutely. And, and let's just go through, because I, one of the things that fascinates me about this, and sorry, you know, science guy, so, you know, <laughs> macabre, but um, there's so many parts in the body that we can utilise. I mean, what, yep. what, is, what are some of the, the pieces, you know, obviously people are very aware of, you know, lungs and hearts, but what other things can be utilised? when someone is deceased um, in the organ donor program? Yeah, so you've mentioned heart and lungs, uh, liver. Um, not many people know you can actually split the liver as well. So right. one segment, um, the left segment of a liver can go to a paediatric, so a child, oh, wow. and they can then implant the right into an adult. So there's a potential there to help two people through liver transplant. Um, there's the pancreas, uh, and you can help two people come off dialysis by donating kidneys. Yep. Mm -hmm. Less than known one is your pancreas islet, so that's a tissue donation, um, so someone with severe diabetes. And then a really rare donation that not many people know about is also stomach and intestines. Mm -hmm. um, so those people are incredibly unwell out in the community, often haven't been able to eat for years, um, who need a whole stomach and right. liver. Um, Intestinal transplant. God, that's extraordinary. Yeah. And 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 things like the the corneas and yeah. So then you've got your tissue yeah, donation. Yeah. So there's eyes and corneal donation um, that can occur, and that's essentially giving the gift of sight to someone, which yeah. I think is incredibly. Um, it's just fascinating. Yeah. Um, and then you've got your tissue donation. So you can donate your heart valves. So um, I, I like. I guess. Children born with genetic um, heart conditions, you can donate your heart valves for someone like that. Right. Skin, bone and tendon. So, of course, we've all known about barley bombings and yep. the New Zealand volcano yeah. where um, skin donation was just incredibly invaluable to mm. those um, events. And yeah. Bone yeah. and tendon to severe um, orthopaedic injuries. It really is yeah. extraordinary how the science of it has advanced. Isn't yeah. it? I just feel like yeah. it's we've gone come a long way in my lifetime of my understanding what's possible. Yeah. Incredible. Now, Kat, you you have been the recipient of, of several organs. So t have, tell us yes. a bit where, where were you before? You know, give us the backstory before the the donation occurred. What was your situation? Um, so I had type 1 diabetes from a young age. Yep. It caused chronic kidney disease as well. It's one of the long-term complications that mm. you can have with diabetes. So I ended up basically going on to peritoneal dialysis right. and when my kidney started to fail. And then I received a call and received the gift of a pancreas and a kidney at the same time. Wow. And that must be, have been quite an extraordinary scenario where there, there was obviously a delay between when you needed you know, these organs and, as you say, when you received this call. How, how long was that approximately? Um, it was only four months for me. Okay. I was very lucky. Yeah. 
And is that, um, I mean, is that typical, four months? What, what we, it all depends what? on, um, I guess, you need to be the right blood group and um, right anti like tissue typing. Yep. Um, some organs also comes down to the height and weight of a donor. So if right. you're a very small recipient, you then need a very small donor for size matching. So there's a lot of stuff that comes into it. Yeah, um, yeah. Getting that call, and so you you got the call, and what happens then? Talk us through the uh, the process, because this is not this is not like uh, you know I had a lap, laparoscopic uh, hernia repair a few years back. It took about forty five minutes. We're not <laughs> we're not talking about that kind of surgery. <laughs> we are not. <laughs> so, what, what was it like? What 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 was the um, process for getting your organs out and some other organs in? Um, so I was actually hooked up to my dialysis when I got the phone call, which was at 2.30 in the morning, right. and I thought it was a prank call. Oh, wow. Because yeah. you get a phone call. Because Megan gives you a lot of prank calls? Or? <laughs> <laughs> Only at 2.30 yeah. in the morning. Yeah. So. Exactly. Yeah. No, but it's a call that you're not expecting. You're yeah. not, there's no way you can expect it. Yep. So yep. a phone call at 2.30 in the morning to say, hi, is that Catherine? Um, we've got organs for you. It's like... What are you? What you just go into shock straight yeah, away? It's yeah. just like I can't believe this has just happened. Um, I basically they said, "Can you come into the hospital?" And I panicked and said, "I'm attached to my dialysis at the moment. Can I come in in the morning?" And they're like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And I'm like, "No <laughs> rush." Yeah, I was yeah. like, "Am I going to lose these two organs if I don't drop what I'm doing and come in straight away?" So. I pretty much, I was saying to Megan earlier, I pretty much started crying at 2.30 in the morning and did not stop crying until I fell asleep on the operating table at wow. 6 p.m., I think it was. Yeah. So now, just just to clarify, you were doing the home version of dialysis because I know, like, I've looked into this, you know, for relatives my, myself, and there's this new version now that you can do at home. Yeah. That's yes. Is that, is that right? So, and that's um, and you do it overnight while you're asleep. Yes. So there's two different types of dialysis that you can do. You can do the hemodialysis, and you can do peritoneal dialysis, right. and both can be done at home. Um, I was doing the peritoneal dialysis, yeah. which basically me up to a machine um you can do it during the day or overnight and yeah i was doing mine overnight <laughs> you yep. get a call two thirty in the morning and um and so you get in there and they you know do, do you do you find out anything about the, the the quality or the a like do they give you any information about the organs or they're just like these ones are right for you we're good to go um the only thing i know about my organ donor because it's totally anonymous yep. is that it was a man Right. Okay. That's it. Yeah. And and post the surgery, because the surgery, I understand, was about nine hours? My surgery, because it was a double transplant yep. of two organs, it was nine and a half hours long. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Is that, you want a slight bit of sympathy for the surgeons? Yeah. <laughs> Not a lot, no, but just, a little bit. It's a huge amount of respect. Yeah. I just think the fact that we know how to do this now is, it's just a boggles my mind yeah and so post the surgery I mean, what was your recovery like because all of a sudden your body your body's got something very different to deal with and and you didn't have you know working or you know properly working kidneys for, for quite a lot long time so That's all of true. a sudden you know what what was that like um 
Well, I'll, I'll touch on the pancreas first. Yeah. To wake up and be handed a chocolate big M. <laughs> um, and my reaction was, no, sorry, I can't drink this. And yeah. the nurse said, yes, you can. Oh, wow. Did you to, burst into tears again at that moment? Pretty much, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, to realise that I was allowed to eat and drink normal food yeah. was one thing. Um I think they're just on that moment we should pause and say, I don't even know who owns Chocolate Big M these days, but you should definitely be donating some money to the Donut Life program <laughs> as a result of that free kick you just Absolutely. got. Oh, yes, the definitely. first thing she wanted, not wanted, was handed, uh, was the Chocolate Big M. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and then to be just realise that like, I was weak and bedridden for a little while, but after mm. that, to know that I didn't have to do dialysis anymore, that I wasn't on fluid restrictions of how much water my body could handle in a day that you know given a fair amount of time and doing all the right things that my body would actually be functioning normally again yeah yeah it's extraordinary isn't it because i mean not not to go too deep into it and feel free to tell me the bugger off but like before you got that call i mean it must have been a pretty somber time given what was happening um it was difficult, but I was actually still working as a chef and wow. I was doing it every day. It was, it's just the fact that, you know, there were so many medications yeah. I had to take and doctor's appointments to go to yep. and, you know, just all these different limits on my body to have some of those lifted. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's, it's a bit cruel being a chef and having problems with your pancreas, I feel. That's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's got to that's be a bit challenging, I think, yeah. yeah. Maybe, Maybe, sometimes. I, yeah. I feel like your donor gave you a double gift, not, not just yeah. a gift of, of life, but there must be all these foods now that you weren't allowed to eat before that as someone who clearly has a lot of expertise in that area, there must have been a lot of joy in expanding the, your your repertoire. Well, I'll, I'll say a little bit more freedom in what I was allowed to eat, yeah. not to say that I didn't actually eat them originally. But. <laughs> we're all going to indulge every now and then. Uh, folks, we're going to take a short break for some music and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the Donate Life program and some of the numbers and so forth around that and why it's important that everyone gets involved. Triple R. And welcome back, folks. You are listening to Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane in the studio with myself and Dr. Jen at the moment is Megan Bruns from Western Health. Uh, Megan is a donation specialist nursing coordinator for uh, organ donations. And we have Kat Walsh, who is an organ donor recipient in the studio as well. Um, Megan, with regards to the numbers, you know, thankfully the group at um, Donate Life sent me through a pack. I like to always say when they get a pack, you know, <laughs> a pack for me is more than one page. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because, you know, I'm a slow, <laughs> people who know me well know I'm a slow reader. Um, but I was looking at some of the numbers and it's quite extraordinary to me how few people actually are donors in Australia. I mean, you must be incredibly frustrated by this uh, in your line of work where, where this is so needed. Yeah, and um, it's, it's also it's so rare as well. Like mm. I mentioned, touched on earlier in the show, um, you know, it's such an controlled environment where you, you can be potentially yep. become a donor. And I think from the numbers from 2021, I think it's only about 2% of people who die in hospital have the opportunity to become an organ donor. So, yeah. you know, we really would like to 
I guess, capitalise on, on that 2% of those mm. people who can become donors. Yeah, and 2% of a very small percentage is a very yeah. small number. <laughs> well, that's the thing, Because you know, yeah. a lot of people don't die in hospital and then if only that tiny proportion of people in hospital are eligible, mm-hmm. it's a tiny number of people. So you're talking about numbers, Shane. I'm looking at the same pack. Yep. You know, 421 yeah. donors in total in all of Australia in 2021. That's yep. a very small number it's of people. It's a very people. small number, yeah. Now, one of the myths I want to sort of, sort of whack around is around age because I, I think a lot of people have this idea and, you know, I'm, you know, I'm almost I'm, – <laughs> let's just say I'm, I'm, I'm around the half-century number, okay? I think that's the way to put it. And – and I think a lot of people in my age group and, and older would be thinking, oh, you know, I'm, I'm too old or, you know, this is only young people have motorcycle accidents, you know, and things like that. But what, what does that look like in terms of age? Because I, I suspect if, I, if I'm 80 and you go and hand me a 70-year-old pancreas, I'm probably pretty good with that. Is that, is that yeah, how it works? There's, it can be up to, I think, uh, the oldest liver donor we've had was 80, I'm going to say roughly 85. Wow. Um, yeah. There is age limits associated with each organ in terms of the yep. donation, but yeah, you can be up to 80 to become wow. an organ donor. And speaking with a lot of donor families as well in my role, um, you know, we raise donation. They'll say about their loved one, oh, he smoked, so he definitely right. couldn't become a donor. But that actually doesn't exclude mm. someone from becoming a donor or they enjoyed a, a drink, like, um, <laughs> which a lot of us do. But again, that doesn't preclude someone from becoming an organ donor. There's, yeah. Ah, I'm back in. Yeah. <laughs> Lucky. Yeah, well, you know, on the ladder, not the smoking, but on the, on yeah. the drink. Because uh, I, I suppose, in, you know, in, in many cases, even even a, a partially functioning organ is better than nothing. Is that how, you, how it's seen? Yep. Yeah, you think of these people who are especially, you know, I keep saying, you know, heart or liver um, recipients waiting on the transplant mm. waiting list, like they're in and out of hospital all the time, yeah. like anything better than their failing heart or failing liver is, you know, will give them, yeah. you know, a new lease of life. It's life-saving. Yeah. And where are we at the moment on the sort of immune system scenario here? Because I know, you know, one of the big problems we have as human beings is we don't like foreign objects in our body. So what does that look like at the moment in terms of matching organs? Do you have to be, you know, perfectly matched? And what does that mean before our immune systems start to kick in and yeah, it's cause probably problems. a bit out of my scope of practice it's more for a, probably a transplant um surgeon or doctor but i they do a lot of testing so we send um donor bloods to the red cross here in melbourne yep. and they do all the tissue typing to make sure that they're as best matched as po- they possibly can be um and probably kat can elaborate on the all the anti-rejection drugs um yeah. transplant recipients do have to take to sort of prevent that um, rejection of yeah. that foreign object or in, is that, that goes a, into the body. Is that a lifetime thing for you now, Kat? To, it is, yes. Yeah. So there's anti-rejection medications that you take every day for the rest of your life. Right. Um, but honestly, it just becomes a routine. Yeah. And I, I suppose your routine in terms of medications before that was a lot worse, right? It was, yeah. 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 So that's not so bad. Not yeah. at all. Yeah. Um, you start off with quite a lot of tablets straight out from your transplant operation and the doctors just work with you and it whittles down and gets lower and lower. At the moment, I take, I believe I take five different tablets with breakfast right. and probably about six different tablets with dinner. That's not too bad. And that's it. Yeah. I think it starts off at around, for some people, 30 tablets in the wow. morning, some yep. people 50 tablets in the morning, and mm-hmm. it just it just works its way down. Yeah, yeah. That's, I was thinking that's good, not, yeah, until yeah. you get to a good stable 
level yeah. and that's where you stay. Excellent, excellent. Now, in terms of the, the donation process, one of the things that um, we should just briefly touch on is how that works. So if I, if I put myself down as an organ donor, um, is, is that the final word or does my family have to approve that? How does that work if I die? Yeah, so uh, we encourage everyone to either register their wishes either way on the Australian Organ Donor Register, but we do need your loved one's consent for organ donation to occur. So it's not just, you know, I'm on the Organ Donor Registry, but that wouldn't mean that, you know, if I was to pass away in hospital that I'm automatically become an organ donor. We still need the consent from, you know, your loved one's for that to occur. Yeah. So, so in other words, it's important to have these conversations rather than just, you know, like, because I, I, I looked it up this morning. I thought, you know, you guys are coming on the show. I better yep. make sure I'm, I'm, I'm on the ticket, you know? I did exactly the yeah, same. Did, <laughs> like, I better check that this thing that I think I did yeah. a couple of decades ago is Exa- still there. Just a couple. I, <laughs> I, I did my, I think I did mine when I got my driver's license, which I was about 18 or something. Um, and that was, you know, what was that, like 12 years ago now? Yeah, yeah. Um, less, so, less, Shane, maybe less. 10. But, but, you know, and, and, you know, your colleagues who sent, sent me through the details you know said it only takes you know 30 seconds or a minute or something to do it and I thought yeah I've heard that before and then you get in there and then there's another question another question but actually it only took about 30 seconds it took me longer to go downstairs and get my wallet with Medicare card (laughs) than to fill in the form but then the form turned around and said to me you're already registered rejected you can't register again which was great and I was surprised actually that information was still in there yeah but that's only part of it you know that second part of discussing those wishes with your family um, is obviously, in, in every sense, almost a, a bigger part. Well, it's probably the most important part. Um, I think for me, as like being a donor coordinator, speaking with so many families when their loved one is at end of life, you know, when we raise donation as a possibility, you know, we know from our studies and stuff that nine out of ten families, when they've got a family who's registered and then had the conversation that they're going to consent to organ donation compared to say I meet with a family and they've never discussed donation and their loved one hasn't registered their wishes either way I think it's only about four out of ten families then do consent to donation because they just they're left with this decision that they just don't know yeah, what their time, loved one would... And in a time when clarity of thought yeah. is probably completely absent. Yeah, so. yeah it's a yeah. very emotional time for families. Yeah. So mm. to have mm. that question asked of them at that time... Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a tough question. Yeah. It's interesting when, you know, I mean, obviously this is a this is a science program and, you know, one of the reasons we have you on is because the science behind this now is extraordinary and you hear about people, you know, living extraordinarily long and, and essentially normal lives. You know, mm-hmm. I don't like to use that, that term, but, you know, lives that are unaffected by, you know, dialysis every day and all of these things which are just, you know, really get in the way. I mean, just the – I mean, how many hours of dialysis would you do a week prior, Kat? Um, so I was doing dialysis every single night, right. and it was a nine-hour program. Wow! Yeah, and that's yeah. and that's the one you do at home, which which not everyone. Thinking. My understanding is not everyone is eligible for that. Is that right, Megan? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what the criteria is between being able to do it. You might be able to elaborate, Kat, between doing it in hospital and at home. But you know, if you're doing it in hospital, it's three to four times a week, in and yeah. out. Like you can't travel. You you know, you can't go away on a holiday. Yeah, um, even just working full time yeah. and, and you know, family, whatever other. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's a really big problem. Yeah. So, and that's all, and that's all gone now for you. That's all. It has all gone. Yeah, yeah, that's extraordinary. So, just before we go, Kat, I mean, what what would you be telling people who are considering organ, you know, even just registering as an organ donor at this point? I would be saying that you can't take your organs with you. There's no use for them once you've gone. Mm. So, if there's a chance to save a life. 
do it. Yeah, yeah. I we think it's save a, a life like mine just by mm-hmm. filling out a form. Yeah, and Megan, you must see people every day that uh, benefit from this. Yeah, and it's you know, I was talking to Kat before. Like, I haven't met many recipients just because we're so donor focused. Yep. But when you do, you know, meet the lives, likes of Kat and I've met, you know, a couple of paediatric recipients, like, you know, it's just life-changing for them and to see that they can go back to work or they can go to school, they can go on a holiday overseas, like, it's just phenomenal what, you know, organ donation can do to someone's life. Yeah. I'm feeling like there must be a lot of tears in your day job, Megan. Like, yeah. there's just so many emotions <laughs> involved. Of the, there's lots. You know, yeah. the, the grief and the trauma of losing a family member, but also the hope that it would bring to know yeah. that that death could bring such joy to somebody else and to another family. And I think, for me, like, families that raise donation before we've even sort of raised it with them, to be, for them, you know, in their darkest hour of grief, like, to be thinking of other people, like, mm. and how their loved one can save someone else's mm. life, like, that really, really takes you back. Like, yeah, it's just so generous and, yeah. Absolutely. Well, look, thank you both for coming in. I would encourage everyone listening, if you haven't done it already, to get on to donatelife.gov.au, I believe is the correct website. Um, it really does take you under a minute to register. They just need your name and details and, and that's it. Um, and But most importantly, to have those discussions with family members, I think... I would guess over 90 to 95% of people's information in this comes from watching television, movies and so forth, some of which is probably decent and the majority of which is probably <laughs> BS. Um, so it's been great having the two of you in to talk through some of these issues and, and you know, what's possible and just how much it can affect and, and change people's lives. So, Kat and Megan, thanks so much for being on Triple R today. Thank you. Thanks thank for having you. me. Thank you for having me. So, folks, just that website again, it's donate life.gov.au. And a huge uh, thank you from the Donate Life people for sending us a couple of great guests today. Dr. Jen, what good having you in. What a privilege today, Shane. I, I know. feel very buoyed by today's show, hearing some amazing science and getting to be in the studio with people. It's yeah. great. It's good stuff. We're going to have to hand over to the team from Eat It Now who are right next door in Studio 2, ready to go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Gogo. Remember, science is everywhere. And we will chat to you again next week with Jen's University of Melbourne students who are going to be running the show. It's Scary. a special show next week. It'll be awesome, folks. Uh, we'll see you then. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.